on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levine. Ahoy there, welcome aboard. On The Big Fish this week, in light of that tragic incident involving a bull shark and a swimmer at Elizabeth Bay, Sydney Harbour, we look at the facts shared on this program over the years, both anecdotal from our Sydney Harbour fishing correspondents and scientific with Dr Amy Smoothie, who has over a decade of tracking research on the bull sharks of Sydney Harbour. That's our first cast this morning, heading to the harbour with Stephen Gaynor. For years on The Big Fish, we've been telling you that the bull sharks of Sydney Harbour are no bull. They're, they're there in, in big numbers. Dr. Amy Smoothie, who uh, spoke to us uh, back in 2019 and again last year about the incredible work being done to track and tag these sharks. Uh, maybe not necessarily more numbers, but more moving as water warms. Uh, they're staying for longer and moving further south. And before um, Amy Smoothie joined us, uh, the expert on, on bull sharks. Stephen Gaynor and Craig McGill, our regular correspondents on Sydney Harbour, uh, shared so much information about their shark encounters and, and more and more of them. And Stephen, it's, it's not a case of I told you so, but if you're a listener to The Big Fish, you would have been aware of, of this issue. And sadly, uh, that, that uh, terrible incident where a woman was bitten the other day, we understand why it happens, I guess. Good to have you back. G'day, Scott. Yeah, it's good to be back, mate. It's been a, been, a, been a few weeks now. I've been pretty busy, so yeah, yeah. it's good to be able to chat with you. Yes, it's, it, look, I left it for a while for things to calm down a bit because it's been uh, shark madness after that attack. <laughs> but, um, you know, from the point of view of, of your everyday work and Craig McGill as well and the other fishing guides on Sydney Harbour and regular fisher folk on Sydney Harbour, um, this is not unusual at all, is it? How many bull sharks would be at any of your fishing points, uh, you know, or, or some of those waypoints on the GPS across Sydney Harbour in any given day? Oh, look, Scott, look, firstly, this is really not unusual at all. It happens every January, February, March. As soon as the water heats up, as soon as the Benito and the Mac Tuna and the frigates move in, we're going to get lots of sharks. Now, in terms of how many are hanging around at one particular spot, it all depends on the fish life and the bait. But, you know, two weeks ago, it was nothing to have three big bulls sort of hanging around. And you can tell that. You could see them on the fish finder. You could see them coming out onto the boat and biting fish in half, which is, you know, when I've got a boat full of kids and they see a three-metre bull shark bite their salmon in half, they're loving it, you know. Like, for me, it's a bit exciting, I've got to say. But, um, look, it, it does happen every year. I think probably good to bring people's awareness up to the fact that, like, you know, January, February, March, just be a little bit careful. You know, like, they're not going to eat humans. There's enough food in the system, but... Just a little bit of common sense and, you know, do the right things and we won't have any issues. That's and my I, opinion anyway. <laughs> and I think one of the photos in that online story we published uh, this time last year was of a, a giant kingfish, I think, uh, from one of uh, our mate Craig McGill's uh, charters, a regular on the big fish. Yes. Uh, which was yeah, a, that was actually um, Steve Windsor's, but it was like a 1.2 king that got bitten in half in front of uh, Vaucluse. I, think, I was there that day. I was right next to him. <laughs> I think it was still a legal fish. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. I think he brought in about 10 kilos of meat after it had been bitten in half. 
Yeah, they still still got a good good feed off it. Take us through what happened there because uh, that must be tragic when you you fight one of these huge trophy kings, which people love to um, take home for a feed, uh, only to also feed the the men in the grey suits. Yeah, look, there's not much you can really do when the fish are all schooled up. Those those sharks are smart. They're hanging around. They know where the fish are, and it's what's amazing. Once the fish is in distress, they go for that fish. Once, like, as a, I used to be a spearer. I think I've told you guys this years and years. You know, once that fish is swimming around with a spear, it's bringing in sharks. As soon as you've got that fish up next to your chest and you, you've got it under control, those sharks will just swim away. They will lose interest straight away. So I, I find them quite fascinating how they know to go after the injured fish, the fish that has something wrong. But as soon as, uh, you know, another apex predator is in on the situation, they just back right off. So, well... Most of the time, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. they are wild animals. I've done a bit of spear fishing myself with Mark McAlone, particularly up at Port Stephens, and very clear water, you, you know, and out towards the heads, it's much clearer than up into the harbour. And I always feel yeah. uh, maybe a false sense of security when you can really see, when there's really good visibility. Uh, Mark tells me a story of, of diving at North Island, and uh, he was spearing fish, and he's, he swum down to the bottom to have a look at something, then looked up, and a school of garfish went shimmering across the surface and then just behind the school of gars was a giant great white that just cruised right over the top of him he could see every lump and bump on it every remora every scar from its breeding tussles uh, and it just slowly cruised across the top and he said even though it was petrifying he he wasn't really scared it was just more awe-inspiring because he could see it you know the, it's yeah. the one you don't yeah. the one you don't see i guess low light murky water particularly with bull sharks that that would be more concerned to me oh, 100% and look that's their hunting advantage you know that's that's perfect conditions for them and and the same with the great whites like they they've seen you a long time before you even notice them and you know he was lucky that fish was just in cruise mode you know, i've seen the same with tiger sharks up um, off gladstone during the day, you could swim with them. They'll be swimming around and just minding their own business. But the, that same fish at night is now going to bite you in half in, in seconds. So it's just all about what mode they're in. Are they in hunt mode? Are they in cruise mode? Um, yeah, I wouldn't like to be playing the game with them, put it that way. No, and, and uh, look, frankly, targeting them, uh, you know, it's just a waste of time to me, although some of the kids get a, get a bit of a thrill out of it because they've got to let them go anyway. There's no, no point in killing them. Um, or, or eating them because they're full of mercury at that size. But I never forget uh, that little story we did. It was last year. It might have been the year before when I ran into some kids who'd come down from Parramatta in the very wee small hours of the morning with their little spin outfits. And one of their mates had a big game outfit and they'd catch Benito and uh, whatever else salmon off the wharf at, uh, <laughs> at Luna Park and then give it to their mate who'd put it out under a float and hook into the the giant bull shark, you know, right off the wharf there at Luna Park, and that was their yeah. that was their weekend. Those lads from from Parramatta who love fishing, um, not my cup of tea. Uh, but, no, you know. no, look, it's something you only ever want to do once. I've had some people on board go, yeah, let's let's chase the shark, and I'm always a little bit cautious of it because it's not a great look, you know. Just for dragging it up and taking a photo, I'm fifty fifty on. But, you know, if it's the science that we're going to tag it, I see no issue. The one thing about when you do catch a shark, they recover straight away. There is no issue with them. You drag them in, they've got 100% energy, they can go off at any time. They generally choose to come to the boat, I find. But they'll swim off fine every time. They're very tough and very resilient creatures. Um, 
But yeah, I think I think you know awareness is a very important thing, especially yeah. in Sydney, such a used waterway. And, I, and I, I've been saying it. I thought last year we were going to have an attack. The amount of you know people using the water every year is just going up and up. So you know it's their territory. What happens happens. Yeah, it's the big fish with Stephen Gaynor from the Flyboat. And Stephen, it must be heartbreaking when someone uh, particularly catches one on fly. They fight so hard. Uh, the the, the, the one, one-to-one ratio fly reel is a very uh, archaic way to fight a fish. It, it is so tough to actually get to, get them to the boat, particularly a bigger one on fly, only to have yep. a shark just pop out from the, under, <laughs> yeah. under the boat that the tax man to take its, his 50% or 80%, you know, it, it must just break their hearts. Well, yeah, it breaks our hearts. goes against all our catch and release philosophy, um, but... Uh, Nah, look, it's, I have to admit, it, 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 we're not, it's not like we're up north where this is happening day in, day out. It only happens to us a few times a year, and most people are pretty excited when a big grey shape comes out from under the boat and bites a fish in half right in front of them, you know? It's, adds to the excitement of the day, I say. <laughs> That's right. And, and what's your theory about, you know, a healthy ecosystem? Uh, because we've seen this in Lake Macquarie, you know, for years and years growing up there, um, everyone said, no no sharks in the lake, no sharks in the lake. And some people would say, oh, you know, I saw one once or, or whatever, but it was very difficult. Now everyone's seen sharks in Lake Macquarie since it became a recreational fishing haven. The same with Sydney Harbour. It's a, a recreational fishing ha- haven. Uh, you know, what does it indicate to you that now you've got oh, more sharks? Look, it's their apex predators, and without apex predators, ecosystems fall apart. I think that's pretty much well-defined and proven. So it just shows a good, healthy system. Um, yeah, I think it's a great thing that we're starting to see more sharks, and I really hope we see more. Obviously, I don't want people to be attacked by them, but I think, you know, a bit of common sense and don't swim at night, dusk and dawn, pretty much fine. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I, think, it's, I think it's a really good thing. Um, like if we take away the sharks, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So, what do you do? Yeah, I also think it, it comes down to nutrients as well. You need those big apex predators that are, you know, they're eating food and the leftovers are drifting down and feeding the bottom of the food chain. Um, you know, when they're doing their poos and whatever they do, that's the, that's starting the food cycle over and over and over. And without without the apex predators, the big fish, the sharks, you just don't get enough of that nutrient load going into the water. And, I think the science is pretty much done on that. Again, like, don't quote me. I'm definitely no scientist. I just repeat a bit. Um, so they're so important. We need it. we need the apex predators, and we really have to look after them. Um, I, I, I don't think we can do without them. So I think it's a good thing. I'm all for sharks. Bring them on. Yeah. Well, they're just part of a healthy system, according to, to the experts. It's the big fish with Stephen Gaynor, who's on Sydney Harbour just about every day chasing uh, pelagic fish with, with flies. And um, the schools were good earlier on in the in the season. Are there still big schools there? Where are the fish? <laughs> That's a good. Um, look, it's been an interesting few weeks. There's still a lot of fish around. There's a lot of rat kings that have moved in. Um, there's big salmon around. There's bonito, but the surface action's kind of been a bit rubbish the last two three weeks. Uh, again, don't know what's going on. Um, We've got Justin Duggan, who's been on the water in the harbour for you know almost as long as Craig McGill. And he's saying he hasn't seen a January this bad in years. So I don't know where the surface action is. The fish are there, 
they're just not on the surface. So, you know, are they feeding down deep? Is there a, is there a better prawn spawn this year? You know what I mean? Like, there's so many variables. Who really knows? But um, just from observation, surface action's been slow. There's a lot of fish on the market. Um, there's heaps of brim, heaps of flathead, all the, you know. So, yeah, it's just the pelagics have been sort of staying down deep. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the thing that's really exciting with the style of fishing that you do. Um, you know, oh, yeah. a, a, a quick boat zooming around the harbour, looking for those bust ups, and then bang with a fly straight into yeah. into the action. You know, that's what you do. So, how do you find fish when they're not showing themselves like that? Oh, mate, look, I, I hate to say it, but I think tomorrow I'll be dragging out the sinking lines. We'll be um, doing a bit of dredging on the deep wrecks, getting a lot of kings like that. We'll be hitting markers. But again, we just got to stay on the ball and you know cover the harbour, go everywhere. Why do and, they? You know, why do they love that Puglisi squid fly on the sinking line? <laughs> I mean, it's it's bright orange, and I, I don't know. know if it really looks anything like a squid. But they're obviously taking it for a squid. But they just cannot resist that fly, can they? They love it, mate. They love it like that and a large chartreuse clouser. You know, tell me why is chartreuse the colour of every? fly fishing, saltwater destination in the world almost. Um, I don't know. And it's the same with the squid fly. They love a squid fly. Uh, I have been playing around with the squid flies using the polar fleece, which has got the the UV in it, which glows. Like you hold that thing on the water and it is glowing. So I can kind of see the appeal to it. But, yeah, standard orange squid fly. The kings love them. But, you know, that is their primary food as well, the squid. And I always joke, like, when, you know, when I'm doing a bait trip and we get 20 squid in the first 25 casts, I say, guys, we've got to go home. We're not going to touch a king today. So, you know. Oh, that's interesting because they're, they're too, too full. Well, when a squid is distressed, when it is buzzed by a kingy or when you do get one on the jig, they do, do go orange. They change colour, don't they? They, go, they can change yes. all sorts of colours. So maybe that orange turns the the king on to know, well, that, that squid knows it's been detected and it's going to try to escape, so i better grab it quick smart. Perhaps that's what's going on. I don't know. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Look, it's, you know, it's fishing. It's all a lot of speculation and observation, but, um, you know, you put two kings, then there's no, there's no issue there. One of them's going to try and eat it. One can get a bit funny. Two, they'll always eat it. And why is it yeah. that if you do hook a kingy and you're smart enough to leave it in the water, if there's another one around or a school of them, you'll definitely get another one on. You might have taken oh. three hours to lure that first one, but then they will take anything thrown at them as soon as one of their mates is, is on the end of the line. Why, why do they do that? I, oh, look, I call it the FOMO. You know, they just fear of missing out on, on a bit of food. But uh, they're a very inquisitive species. You know, how many times do you chat to old guys that are banging, banging in nails on their timber boats and the whole school will come over? So they're always going to follow the action. And I think one king going around, you know, he's just going to G up his mate. Like, oh, what's going on here? Where's the food? What's he eating? So I just, I personally think it's more of that. They just get excited and they, they start eating. Because there's so many times we've seen the opposite, where they're very lethargic and they've come out and have a look. And, you know, the one thin kick and they'll go, oh, no, no, we'll swim back to the market, you know. So, yeah, they have their moods, mate. They're like us. It's great because... You often observe them, too, in the clear water, whether they're on the surface or down a bit. I, n- I never forget uh, in the shallow water, clo- in close at Long Reef, and I hooked a nice one on a, on a big soft plastic uh, with Peter LeBlanc, actually, and I'm looking down. I could actually, I saw the fish take it. We could see the school, and this fish grabbed it 
and the tail of the soft plastic flew off and it's hooked on the jig head and I see the tail of the soft plastic sort of wafting out of the mouth of this big one I hooked and another one came straight in and ate that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I saw yeah. it take it. You know, it was quite extraordinary. Um, so it just uh, is is amazing that they don't want to miss out. FOMO could very well be it. If someone could invent a flyer, a lure, and why they like those sluggos, I've got no idea. I, I, obviously, it's probably I don't know because you can rip them across the top at a million miles an hour, and that that's oh, the only way they'll take so them. Good. But their movement is so good. Like, what lure? Can you just wind and stop, wind and stop, and get the movement that they do? Uh, look, I personally think it's a garfish-related lure. Like, I'm no expert on it. Oh, that could be it. Yeah, definitely. Got to like be a gari. Got to be a gari. Got to be a gari. Yeah, you yeah. know, gari, oh, yeah, flying fish, all of those sort of topwater pelagic sort of species. Like, but then again, you can use it as a jig as well. Let it sink to the bottom and rip it up and get the same results. So, yeah, yeah, amazing. And just, just a... A long piece of soft rubber, basically. Uh, if someone invents a fly or a lure that has a little ink capsule or a, 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 <laughs> an ink an ink reservoir, idea. and you could send a message down and it puts out a puff of squid ink, that'd be the greatest thing ever, wouldn't it? Has anyone tried to do that? That is. Ah, oh, look, now you're stealing some uh, some of Craig McGill's tricks there. I think. No, no, no. That that is a great idea. Uh, I think uh, a single-use fly, though, wouldn't be very good in our industry. <laughs> I don't get much use out of mine. If I only got one pop with the ink sack. Is, has anyone ever tried know, to put put um, the contents of the ink sack onto a, a fly? Have, have you ever done that sort of nefarious stuff? <laughs> we're, we're delving into dark territory here, Scott. Look, I won't <laughs> lie. I've put scent on flies. I've never put ink on flies, but... I'm out on flight tomorrow. I might know what I might be doing. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the, the purists are, are going to be um, holding a, 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 a rally outside of the ABC headquarters to, to uh, a campaign against this heresy of, uh, of scenting up a fly. But uh, you do whatever you've got to hey, do. Mate, do whatever you got to do. I never said I was a purist. I'll catch them any way I can. You know, I love catching them while I'm fly. But I've got to do what I've got to do at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, well, good good luck out on the harbour, harbour Stephen. And look, uh, it's good to, to have a rational discussion about this. Uh, I've left it for a while because it's very sad. Thanks. Oh, for- look, it's, it's an absolute tragedy what happened to her. And, and look, thank God that she's all right, you know, because that could have gone really bad. So, yeah, look, I think awareness and just remember, it's a shared resource and we share it with sharks. Yep, good point. Stephen Gaynor, Tight Lines, thanks for joining us on The Big Fish. Thanks, Scott. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio.
Billy Joel there with a modern sea shanty about chasing the monsters from the deep. Coming up on The Big Fish, we'll look at over a decade of scientific work that's been gathered on Sydney Harbour, data that's been collected on the bull sharks that visit the harbour to help us understand the habits, movements and population of these giant predators. And Stinker talks about preparations for going to sea. It's all coming up on The Big Fish. Morning, Stinker. Hey, g'day, Scott. How are your unwanted boat mates going? We had a bit of a laugh last week about coming back from the tweed from your long break to find that the boat was full of redback spiders. Oh, well, I don't 
I didn't count the Redbacks, but they they all had eight legs. I can tell you that. But uh, they they scampered when when they saw that I wasn't uh, comfortable with their presence. Um, they scampered, and they've taken up residence in the Weirra shed. Um, so they're happy there, you know. I mean, I spiders. I don't mind spiders as long as they keep their distance. Oh, they don't bother me uh, as long as they don't live in my boat. <laughs> that, no. That's the bottom line. Spiders can go and live in the corner in some dark corner somewhere, and just in my Weirra shed. And of course, that's the shed we're all. Uh, um, the fish are caught. We're sort of ankle deep in scales after a good conversation in the weary shed. And that's what I've got my uh, fridge down there and my freezer, uh, all my tackle gear. I love to sit in the weary shed. It's just like a, it's just my little corner of the world where uh, I can um, just, I don't know, I go off on. Uh, on a bit of a, a dream world in the, in the Weirra Shed. That's my corner of the world. And, and of course, it's also where you, you keep all of the things you need to do to go to sea. I mean, getting the bait, um, making sure that the anchor rope's not going to break, uh, making sure the spiders have disembarked. Um, you, you're preparing <laughs> to go to sea, I believe. Oh, certainly. Tomorrow um, is, is looking really good. I've had a pretty easy week because... The conditions have just been shocking. And I, like I said last week, I'm a caged lion, but I'm still in the cage because I, uh, the conditions just haven't been um, what I need to go and catch my snapper. They're out there. There's plenty there. Don't worry about that. The snapper are jumping on top of each other. But to be good, to get out there is another thing. But um, tomorrow I'm going, I'll be spending a couple of days around the islands Oh, gee, I'm looking forward to it because conditions are absolutely ideal. No, looking looking good, Stinker, and not too hot, not too cold, not too windy. Goldilocks conditions. Yeah, yeah, look, I, I know I'm going to catch snapper, and, and that's, yeah, I'm very confident. I know where the snapper are. I'll, I'll take a few, um, and then I'll wander around the island, have a bit of a swim, uh, climb a couple of hills there, um, I'll always take the newspaper with me. I might <laughs> read the newspaper, do the crossword puzzle, uh, <laughs> uh, look at the birds. I'm always interested in the bird life over there. Um, so I'm not going over there to catch as many fish as I can. That's that's not what I do. I, I just um, fishing is really an excuse for a good time, in my opinion. <laughs> Some people are completely focused. On catching fish. Well, good on them, but gee, there's more to fishing than catching fish. Well, having been to Broughton with you, uh, it's a couple of hours at dawn, although more and more you're dusk because you're getting lazy, and uh, yeah. or a couple of hours at dusk, isn't it? It's not really uh, fishing the whole day. You might potter around a north beach. I, I, you know, There's good little fishing things you can do, like throwing some bread in and see if you can lure up some, some ludric and stuff or just look at the penguins or the crabs or uh, see if you can find a, a, a rare frog in the, in the pools over the back. So, I mean, there's a lot of just pottering around there all day in the sunshine, isn't there? There is. It, it's uh, like nature's wonderland over there and you can... You can busy yourself. It's not like a place. There's another place similar called Tamboy, 
and and there are huts. You see, there are huts on Broughton Island, um, in National Park, and there are also huts at Tamboy, which. Now, Tamboy's a fascinating place. We must go there one day. It's at the where the Myall River uh, enters the Myall Lake system, and there were seven huts there that uh, were Prawner's Hut originally, way back in 1920. Now, I've stayed up there too, but after two days there, you start to go a bit bonkers because you've run out of things to do. Um, except you can sort of look at the swans or chase the goannas, but there's, <laughs> there's not a real lot. But on Broughton Island, you can keep yourself busy there. I don't know. I reckon I could last forever, maybe. Well, there's some fairly, fairly nice walks there. If you want to have a, a fair dinkum walk, you can go right up to the top of the mountain, can't you? That's a pretty hard walk. Oh, I've done it once, and that's once is enough for me. There are people, and friends of mine included, that they see a mountain, the first thing one day I want to do is climb it. Well, <laughs> that's not me. I say, look, take a camera, take a few photos and show me when you come down. I, I'm quite happy to do that. But they're challenged by every mountain they see, oh, we've got to climb to the top of that. Well, good on, good on them. But uh, I did it once. Oh, gee, it's a hard climb. And the, and the scenery, oh, spectacular. You're looking pretty much from... Stockton in the south to Seal Rocks in the north. Oh, and particularly during the whale season, and that's when I climbed it a couple of years back. But directly under me were just 30 whales, humpback, just basking in the sun. They weren't going anywhere. They were just having a bit of a rest, huffing and puffing as whales do. And But it's the bird life up there too. Um, since... Well, since um, how long has it been now? Now, 10 years since the rabbits have been removed from um, Broughton Island. Actually, more than that, 12, 13 years since the rabbits were removed from Broughton Island by National Parks and Wildlife, and the vegetation has blossomed and bloomed. And, it's, and of course, the rain has made it um, pretty, uh, re- really green. And so it's, it's beautiful. And, and the um, bird life, has flourished, and there are birds all over the place. So if you're a bird watcher, it's the place to go. Oh, so if you're a fisherman or a geologist or a bird watcher or a walker or a mountain climber, um, that's or a beer drinker, you, know, <laughs> you can mix all that up and, and just have a lovely time. It's the big fish and stinkers about to hit the high seas to head over to Broughton Island. When we were there years ago, it was just alive, particularly Esmeralda Cove at night, alive with rats. It used to give me the heebie-jeebies. Are they gone too? Yep, rats are gone, cockroaches are gone, everything, all that vermin is gone. I mean, National Parks cop a bit of a flogging every now and then. If anyone wants to blame uh, something on somebody... Uh, it's generally National Parks cop it, but I can't say enough good things about what's been done on Broughton Island by National Parks um, and certain people who have really uh, taken it to heart and have a genuine love of the place and have done a wonderful job in turning it around from a rat-infested, uh, cockroach-crawling joint 
that that uh, also the mutton birds go crackers over there too. So everything was a bit frantic, really. A little bit like, a little bit like, um, um, nor, uh, not Norfolk, Lord Howe. You know, they have problems over there with rats. And yeah, yeah, they've, they've got an official rat catcher, I think, and, and they've done the similar thing. And the, the dogs are the, the thing, Stinker. I yep. believe the, yep. the, the, the dogs have been really, really important in, in getting rid of them because they've got the Lord Howe Island wood hen to uh, save, which is a, a, a ground breeding and, and ground living bird that was on the brink. And they're pretty silly. You walk into the Cantia Palms and go <laughs> with your hands, and they'll come over and, and say good day. And of course, the. Uh, the shipwrecked sailors would knock them on the head and eat them for dinner. So they, they um, you know, needed a bit of protection. They certainly sound like they did. But, yeah, well, the dogs here were, were brought in. I mean, pellets were dropped by helicopters. Everyone was asked to leave the island. This was going back quite a few years in National Park's effort to get rid of the vermin. Everyone was basically told in August of that year to leave the island and then the helicopters come over and drop pellets, uh, which were gobbled up by the rats and the rabbits. Um, and it appeared that they were successful because you couldn't see a rabbit or, or a rat. And then they said, right, oh, there's only one way to prove whether we've been successful or not, and that's to release the dogs. Well, the dogs run around all over the island and couldn't find a thing. And that's how it remained for the last 10 years, which is fantastic news. So any, everything has, has benefited because all those introduced species have gone. Um, and then the island is a much nicer place to visit. Oh, look, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing to me that very few people in um, Nelson Bay have been there, and it's eight nautical miles down the coast. Um, yet they've been to Italy and France and all over the world, and they say, oh, look, we've seen everything. I said, you haven't seen anything until you go to Broughton Island. <laughs> so spend spend a day, you know, instead of going to, to Italy next time, go to Broughton Island and have a look over there. <laughs> you, you run into some characters, though. It's it's funny, isn't it? In these places, they, they draw characters. I remember sitting on the veranda of one of those huts talking to, to former... Uh, first-class Wallaby uh, a rugby union player, a boxhead O'Shea, um, yeah. year, years ago. Uh, what, a, what a great character. And then one time a whole heap of um, uh, SAS commandos were on, in kayaks <laughs> came onto the island and then took off into a, a 30-foot sea. I, I don't know if they ever came back, but they were doing a training, a secret training drill. They were interesting chaps too. Oh, look, you meet a lot of interesting people. I wrote a book many years ago called Broughton Islanders. And in that book, I, I wrote all the stories that I had heard from all the old fishermen and anyone who had visited the island, plus those on shore here, the commercial fishermen particularly. Uh, and a lot of the stories revolve around big fish, sharks and lobsters. <laughs> that's that's pretty much what it was all about. But interestingly enough, it's been pretty much uh, the gathering of international people um, going way back. There are even suggestions the Portuguese in the 16th century. Well, that's stretching it a bit much for me. But the Chinese were certainly there in the 1800s, 
as were the Italians who who uh, were there to trap lobsters. And it is written that there were 900 lobster traps around Broughton Island set by the Italians, who never, ever came to Nelson Bay. And then in 1906, that's when the French turned up to um, try and do the research on how to eradicate rabbits on the mainland, which was unsuccessful, and that's why there was a rabbit plague on the island, because the Frenchmen left, but the rabbits didn't. And then after that, of course, the Europeans were there, and then just before the First World War, the Greeks turned up. And uh, and they were very hard, very, very highly respected people. Um, the Katsikas family and uh, Jimmy Carra George, uh, who I also wrote about. Um, look, it is just a fantastic place. And it, it, it disappoints me to a degree that more of us don't go over there and actually have a good look and learn about it because it's very much part of Australian history certainly is stinker well you're you're certainly doing it tomorrow uh hitting the high seas i hope you're, you're all prepared not taking stink pot though are you you're taking stink bug the the, the one that's a little yeah. bit bigger yeah yeah well stink see it's at 14 um kilometers or eight nautical miles and stink pot which has got a nine horsepower motor if i had enough juice oh, i'd be quite confident in traveling that 14 kilometres in stink pot, it'll be a bit uncomfortable. But if the conditions were right, I'd have no trouble getting up there. But then if, if conditions turned a bit miserable, well, then it's going to be miserable trying to get home in an 11-foot tinny. So it's not a good idea. But I did it a couple of times because it was a trawler um, working out of Nelson Bay, travelling north and going out of um, the Seal Rocks area somewhere up there. And so... I said, look, can any chance we can tow, tow Stinkpot up and pick me up on the way back, drop me off on the island and pick me up on the way back? Well, we, I did that a couple of times. And to be on the island with an 11-foot tinny, oh, it was sensational. Because you go in all those little nooks and crannies and, and you can get underneath the mountains and go through the gaps where other, others can't go. But in this little tinny, you can go anywhere you like. So that was exciting. But I got there, I, um, I I fish for snapper pretty much only. I don't use any lead at all. 20-pound line, 6-0 hook, um, burly up. I've collected all bread for the last week or so, and I've, so I've got a pile of bread. Uh, every fish loves a feed of bread. And uh, I'll go up there, catch enough fi- um, snapper to bring home, and that'll uh, and have a good relaxing time. I'll have it a couple of days back in the middle of next week. Oh, so I'll have some great yarns for you next week. Ah, oh, Stinker. Everyone listening to this, uh, they would love to be on board with you. Tight lines, mate. We'll catch you next week and hopefully you make it back safely from Broughton. Yeah, that'd be good. Hurry, Scott. On ABC Radio, it's The Big Fish with Scott Levi. And a lot of interest and talk about bull sharks in Sydney Harbour after that incident at Elizabeth Bay. And uh, I'm sure everyone listening to The Big Fish would wish Lauren O'Neill a speedy recovery from those nasty, nasty injuries. Uh, Thanks to Dr Amy Smoothie and colleagues at New South Wales DPI Fisheries, we know a lot more about the bull sharks than we did. We spoke back in 2019 to Dr Smoothie, and it looks like there's not necessarily an explosion of numbers 
but uh, environmental factors are, are meaning that the sharks are coming further south and staying longer. It's a little bit of what Amy had to say in an interview uh, back in 2019 with uh, almost a decade of research under her belt from getting out, catching sharks and tagging and tracking those sharks. So the species that I'm targeting is bull sharks. I've been working on bull sharks since 2009 and um, we wanted to learn more about the movement and behaviour of bull sharks in Sydney, specifically Sydney Harbour. So since 2009, I've been lucky enough to tag 72 bull sharks in Sydney Harbour. These sharks have ranged in size from 2 metres to uh, 3.2 metres in total length. So these are large, sexually mature sharks. And what's really interesting is that we're getting around 73 to 75% of the population is uh, male. So it's a male-dominated estuary, Sydney Harbour. Why is that? Do you know yet? We're not too sure why. Um, other species of sharks have sexually segregated um, to maximise survival or re- for reproduction um, traits. However, we're not too sure why Sydney Harbour is dominated by males. Um, we do get females, but I guess another really interesting finding that we um, have found as a result of the tagging and, and fishing for sharks is that we don't get juvenile bull sharks. Um, a lot of fishes infer that um, these little dusky whalers that are being caught throughout Middle Harbour and the harbour waters are juvenile bulls. But um, on close examination, um, these sharks are, um, in fact, dusky whalers. And I caught a dusky whaler myself, actually, last night. We've tagged 72 bull sharks in Sydney Harbour since that period of time. They're all large sharks, 2 metres to 3.2 metres. And what we're finding is some really key predictable patterns um, with respect to their distribution and abundance. So when the water temperature starts to warm up around 22 to 23 degrees, bull sharks are at their most numerous in the harbour waters. Um, And that obviously um, corresponds to our summer and autumn months. And we've found that uh, the bull sharks are more numerous in January and February, and that's linked to the water temperature. So when water temperature is around 22, 23 degrees, bull sharks are present in as they have been for many, many years. And through tagging and tracking these sharks, we've found that they're utilising all areas of the harbour. So from the harbour entrance all the way up to the Lane Cove River, Middle Harbour, um, the Parramatta River. It was initially inferred that Middle Harbour and locations like the Spit were key hotspots and um, and people had inferred that these were areas for mating and, and pupping. So as a result of our research, we've found that um, Middle Harbour, although sharks are there, if they're not, um, that location is not a hotspot location um, and it's definitely not a pupping location because we haven't caught any um, juvenile bull sharks in Sydney Harbour. 73% of those sharks that I've tagged are returning to Sydney Harbour each year. So I've been tagging sharks since 2009 and I'm getting some amazing results. So um, these sharks are returning, but not just on one year. Some sharks have returned six or more years that, um, from looking at the data. And we also um, are recapturing the same animal. So the, this season I've recaught um, five sharks that I've previously tagged. So these sharks are incredibly healthy. They're... Um, 
There's no indication that they've been tagged. The only way we know that they've been tagged is that we put a hydrophone in the water that detects the internal acoustic tag that talks on a 69 kilohertz frequency, and the, the hydrophone um, allow, uh, listens for any tagged sharks. So, yeah, of the 11 sharks that I've tagged over the, uh, the summer months so far, um, five have been recaptured. So that's really interesting in itself. So it does suggest that the population in Sydney Harbour isn't infinitively large. Obviously, if the more recaptures suggest that the population is obviously smaller than um, originally anticipated, because if you didn't get any recaptures, you would infer that the population is very large. But what's really interesting about the results that we're getting from these animals, so we're, we're tagging them with the internal acoustic tags. These are um, a great technology because they allow us to monitor the sharks for up to 10 years. So this is a large proportion of a shark's life cycle. The animals we've been tagging in Sydney Harbour, they stay um, for the summer and autumn months. And then when the water temperature drops, below 20 degrees. These sharks have been detected um, travelling north and um, tracked over the, in the Great Barrier Reef in the winter and spring months. Down in Sydney, when the water temperatures are warm and up in escaping the cold um, for the winter and spring in the Barrier Reef. Um, and it's also quite fascinating that we're finding there's a period of time between July and November where the sharks aren't detected and, and it's possible that these sharks could be moving offshore, potentially going to Indonesia and, and to the Pacific. But I want to highlight that in that period we're not hearing them, but then um, December comes and their sharks are back into the Sydney region. So we're finding some really interesting results. And although we're, um, we've tagged 72 sharks in Sydney Harbour, as part of the shark management strategy, We've tagged over 145 bull sharks since 2009. And these sharks have ranged from newborn 70 centimetre sharks all the way up to 3.4. So we're really learning um, a lot about these sharks. And it's only as a result of the tagging and tracking that we've been able to find um, some really valuable information about the water temperature of being a key predictor of their abundance. Tell us about the juveniles. Do you know where the babies are going, uh, where they're being pupped and where they're going. Yeah. So when we initially started the tagging program in 2009 in Sydney Harbour, we were only catching males. So that led me to think, hey, where are the females and um, where are the juvenile sharks? So we went and, and communicated and spoke with um, recreational and commercial fishers in the north of the state. And we found that um, bull sharks are coming into the estuary, so female bull sharks are coming into um, the Northern Rivers region, down to Manning, um, the Manning estuary around uh, November, Ta December. Yeah, yeah. yeah, until around November, in the month of November, December. How far up river, Amy? Just... They, they go all the way to the river reaches. Mm. Um, bull sharks are one of the few species that can tolerate fresh water. So they um, are incredibly fascinating in that they can occupy river in, the river environments, the estuarine environments, our nearshore reefs, and linking to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, so, you know, very fascinating animals. Dr Amy Smoothie on the big fish back in 2019 on uh, the research suggesting that the numbers of sharks in Sydney Harbour aren't growing significantly. They're just staying longer down south and going further south as well. And when we spoke to Amy this time last year, in March 2023, we broke the story that uh, a shark, a bull shark, was tracked way down south of Eden, 
uh, off the continental shelf, uh, way down in the deep water, due to the fact that the hot East Coast current was pushing down like a freight train. And therefore, this was the, the furthest south one of these uh, tropical species or subtropical species had ever been tracked. So it's an indicator of the fish moving due to the uh, water temperature changing and uh, some great research being done there to keep us all safer and obviously give us an, an understanding of these important apex predators that uh, are there in a healthy system. That's the big fish. We'll catch you next week. Don't forget to, you can pick it up online. Easy to do. You won't need any sort of bait. Just jump on the ABC Listen app and it's there for you to catch. Get out of it, bloody seagulls. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.